And that jarring cacophony, as usual, tells you you're listening to The Power of Three, the Doctor Who podcast that likes to go anywhere in time and space, usually with Scottish people on board. And we like to discuss, digress, digest, disagree and discourse as we work our way around the Doctor Who universes. I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. It's a very sunny Sunday morning. It is, it is. It's a beautiful day and I've already been out and got my 10,000 steps, so not going to complain at that. I'm probably about 29 steps this morning because I've got up, walked to the bathroom and then come and sat down to have this chat with Kenny, so that's good. Fantastic. Well, today, Dave, we are discussing the fanzine book, the new publication from Telos, which is written by Dr. Alistair McGowan, to give him his proper name, although he's just Alistair McGowan in the cover, and published by Telos and David Howe. So, this is a one that I've, I've known about this for a wee while and really excited because Alistair is an old friend of mine. In fact, Alistair was actually the first other proper Doctor Who fan that I ever met many, many years okay. ago in Gambus Lang. Lived around the, literally lived around the corner from me. Cool. Yes, I've known Al, as I always call him, for just about as long as I've known Kenny. He's a good guy. We used to go out drinking quite often in our 30s when it was time for such things. Um, and yeah. He's someone I think who, who very much knows his stuff and is probably one of the right people to, to tackle the subject of this book. Yeah, I mean, Alistair and I, along with Alan Morton, we edited the fanzine Paisley Pattern, which was the newsletter, which then became the fanzine of the Strathclyde Doctor Who Society. Known, of course, in short as Sadwaz, because we like to be ironic. Yes, I was, as I've said in the past in the podcast, I'm sure I was quite a late comer to organised Doctor Who fandom. I didn't really get involved. I never really got desperately involved until about 1996 when I met Tony Nixon. But I'm, I was obviously familiar seeing with, with people seeing them around at events or what have you, or comic marks or, or in just, an, just an FP, really. <laughs> so Paisley Partner is something I don't think I ever actually contributed to. Probably not, but I'm, I've certainly I've read the odd issue. I think um, Dave McNeil gave me a, a bunch of his to read at one point. So I'm aware of the legacy, certainly. That's good to know it has a legacy. Obviously, I was the junior partner, Alistair and Alan, because they had Macs. They could obviously would write stuff up in their Macs and design it on there, whereas I didn't have that capability. But I learned an awful lot from them because quite often we'd spend because you know, the Glasgow Doctor Group met on a Saturday and our Friday evenings would be spent when I came back from uni we'd be working in Paisley Pattern. We usually watch an episode of Doctor Who or a story and then uh, it would come to a certain point in the night where clasp the hands, slap them together and say, so, Paisley Pattern. And then the work would begin and we you know, would discuss what we were doing. And Alistair and Alan had previously done a fanzine called Roberta Toby's Mini Kilt, which was uh, sort of their first venture into that. Alistair had been doing stuff and Alan had previously worked on the fanzine Highlander, but they were just contributors to it, but this was their own one. And I have to say that it was an amazing learning ground. I learned an awful lot from them. Just, you know, like be concise. I mean, something that Alice used to always point out, which was brilliant, was for Doctor Who fans, you don't need to tell us the story of, for example, the Highlanders. We don't need that sort of stuff. We don't need production codes. 
tell us what you thought of it. Just you know, go for it and think that's absolutely yes. brilliant. A really, really good piece of advice early on and just like, yeah, yeah completely. I remember, um, it must have been about 96, 97, Alistair along with, um, with David Darlington put out a, a, a fanzine called November Spawned a Monster, which had um, obviously was had a sort of Smith's Morrissey inspiration going on. And they made a very excellent point. I remember reading that about um, certain types of Doctor Who fans who just liked reiterating facts when discussing stories rather than, as you say, giving their thoughts or their, their own personal opinions or writing lists <laughs> and how pointless that was ultimately. Yeah. It's a bit of a harsh thing in a way, but it's it's an excellent point. I mean, you know, everyone knows what happens in Invasion of Time. So, for example, you don't have to talk about the fact that it was, you know, a lot of it was last minute and filmed on location because they lost studios or because of strikes or whatever. But, you know, talk about the interesting stuff. Talk about the costume design. Talk about how well you think what actually happens work rather than just, you know, write another programme guide because, you know, there's plenty of those sort of books available already. Absolutely. And of course, this was pre-internet days as well. Well, it was maybe early internet days, so we perhaps didn't have the social media where you can bombard people with your opinions and things. So it was quite a, it was, it was, it was a really oh. good insight. And November Spawned Monsters just, it was just fantastic. I hadn't dug my copy out in a wee while and I feel the urge to because I think fandom tends to go in cycles. And I mean, we'll hear very shortly that this book, the fanzine book, is a history of fandom in many ways and how it chronicles yeah. things. And it's quite interesting to see patterns from the 80s and even indeed the 70s repeating themselves in the last few years as well. And I think the difference is there's, whereas before you had to go to a fanzine to do it, whereas now the power of social media means that everybody can hear your voice. Yes, it's um, it's an interesting thing to think about. As I say, I was a latecomer to organised fandom. So I remember the, the very first fanzine I ever bought was a fiction zine called Vipod More. And I bought this just for the sake of having something to buy when there was a, an exhibition in Paisley Art Gallery Museum, or sorry, Museum and Art Gallery in 1988 for Doctor Who's 25th anniversary. I think it was arranged and set up by local fans. No, no, at that point, I didn't know any of them. But I remember on the Saturdays, there were people sort of there, um, you know, sort of with, with stuff to punt. I remember buying this fanzine and also bought my very first issue of Envision, um, which is was a, a kind of um, a making of fanzine, basically, which got more and more detailed the longer it went on. And I have so many memories of going up to Glasgow on Monday afternoons after school to buy, to go into Forbidden Planet to buy Envision. And that continued all the way, you know, from my mid to late teens, all the way well into my late 20s of buying Envision and going and sitting. As I used to go and sit in Wimpy and get a couple of cheeseburgers and read it, you know, along with whatever new comics I've got. Um, so... But then very soon afterwards, um, when I discovered Forbidden Planet had opened in Glasgow, I, I bought my first issues of DWB. And it was astonishing to find out that a lot of other people didn't really seem to like Doctor Who very much. Pe I was, you know, astonished to learn that a lot of people didn't like the the Graham Williams stuff, a lot of people didn't like John Pertwee's stuff. Astonished to see that some stuff was held up in such regard in, in ways that which nowadays it isn't. And the point Kenny's making about the change in social media is it was quite easy to live in a bubble and not of any idea what other people thought of a doctor. I mean, I, you know, as I said, I've said thousands of times, I'm a huge fan of season 24, and to this day I'm baffled by the people who don't like it. Um, and you go on social media now, and as Kenny says, it's just, especially on, on Doctor Who, sort of, if you if you're even just to click on Doctor Who, or, you know, look at people's replies to various things about Doctor Who, opinions are out there, and they're as varied and wild and 
and crazy as ever. I mean, I know some people who have really enjoyed the last few series on television, whereas I, broadly speaking, haven't really, haven't been that engaged by it. But people's feelings and the depth of feelings are as passionate as they ever were when they were condemning the works of John Nathan Turner and exalting Philip Hinchcliffe when I first sort of became aware of proper fandom in the 80s. It's it's very interesting that this, I totally agree with what you say about patterns repeating because it's um, there's always going to be that difference in how people receive stuff and how they you know process it and enjoy it or, or not. And I think if anything, nowadays it's got a little bit less polite and a little bit more emotional and slightly out of control in some ways but then you look back at again some of the content used to get in DWB and I wouldn't name any names and a lot of that was completely out of control and very irrational so yeah history repeats doesn't it I mean the thing is that I mean you can see stuff that we've written years ago and just think oh my goodness I'm quite embarrassed by it but then again it's like musicians are embarrassed by early lyrics and things like that so we all learn to grow up and that's the thing life experience teaches you just how to present your opinions in a more balanced and mannered way. Yeah. The thing yeah. is that I mean, fanzines are so important to me because in what I do with Big Finish now, it all started through a fanzine um, with mm-hmm. Maganzine back in 2001 after the first series of Megan Audios came out. And I was just so enthused by them again, sort of like my love of Doctor Who suddenly just exploded once more and it was all new and the series was had actually had a continuation. And this was like the current ongoing series. There was obviously the BBC books were there, but this was Paul McGann playing the Doctor again. And because I did that zine, went down well, did another issue and then changed the zine name to the finished product and did the mm-hmm. making of a load of other stories. Then some real life happened when I got a girlfriend, then a wife and then a child. And that's what went by the wayside. And then as the child grew older and Katie was getting bigger, it was I thought I rediscovered my love of just the Lucy Miller series and the finished product was resurrected and went on for another, gosh, was it 13 issues it ran for? And then I was, I was asked to do the Big Finish Companion Volume 2 as a result of that. And then after the amazing, brilliant, lovely Paul Sprague passed away, I said to Nick, I'll help if you want, I'll help out for a month until you find somebody to take on Vortex permanently. And said, no, just do it, take it on. And it was, uh, I felt really honoured to be given that. Um, you know, given that Paul was a friend and we spoke an awful lot every day by email. So yeah, it was quite a, a humbling moment. So it means a lot to me, and fan te- all because of fan teams. I wouldn't be doing this now. If, yeah, um, I mean, I think what you're doing now between um, Power of Three and Pieces of Ace is, is very much a sort of an audio fanzine, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way of summing it up. Yeah, if, if you'd have the podcast that way, to say, but you'd, you'd probably be writing this all down and, and you know publishing it. Um, and driving another way. Mad. It's another way of expressing. I, th- I suppose it's just another way that things would, because obviously there are a lot of Doctor Who fans now who do stuff on YouTube as well as in, in podcasts and stuff or Instagram, or whatever. And it's yeah. the fa- I think the fandom is just creative, but it's, it just has new ways of expressing. And it'd be really interesting, I think, if in another few years, if someone's throwing a history on, on say, podcasts or or YouTube channels and or what have you, because it's it's it seems the as me- as the media scape has evolved over the decades, you know, fandom has evolved with it. And um, YouTube channels, podcasts are very much the fanzines of, of what we have nowadays. I, I don't, I'm not really aware of any fanzines that are still being pu- that are still published. I mean, there might well be some for all I know. I know that the Doctor Appreciation Society still does its its magazines and stuff, but I don't, I get, I don't get the sense there's as many sort of printed ones as there used to be. Which is a real shame because when I joined the Doctor Appreciation Society, 
there was the Celestial Toy Room and it had the CT advertiser, which came with it, which was just adverts for fanzines and tape zines. So I suppose that was early podcasts in a way. And it was just fantastic just having all these things there. And so many of these are chronicled in Alistair's book. And Mm -hmm. it's just amazing to see how they've grown, the fact that some were advertised before they'd even been published because they were looking to get the money in. But we'll hear more about that very soon from Alistair and David. But I mean, for me, this book is... It's essential because I love fanzines. Fanzines sort of gave me early writing experience before I you know, went on to my proper, in inverted commas, uh, writing career and, and doing journalism and newspapers and editing newspapers and being an award-winning newspaper editor once upon a time. Scottish mm-hmm. local weekly newspaper of the year 2017, the Ayrshire Post, editor <clears throat> Kenny Smith. And that was quite a nice wee thing, sort of, uh, you know, all those wee things you learn in fanzines, everything you do, every day, every issue, they always pick up something new and it's rather nice to think that I could bring you know, something that was a, a fan interest helped me in my professional career. And Absolutely. it's just and the great thing is that see with Alistair having started out doing fanzines and writes for Doc Two magazine now, wrote for Doc Two, the complete history, doing the wonderful biography sections of people in those. And of course, now he's got the book. So I really, really heartily recommend it for anyone with an interest in fandom, with an interest in fanzines and generally with an interest in writing about Doctor Who, it's fantastic to borrow a word from Mr. Eggleston. So, shall we hear from the gentleman now? I think we should. I'm Alistair McGowan, and I'm the author of the fanzine book, The Golden Age of the Doctor Who Underground Press. And I'm David J. Howe, publisher of the fanzine book, <laughs> The Golden Age of the Doctor Who Underground <laughs> Press. <laughs> So it's a good job we're all here today to discuss the forthcoming book about uh, the Doctor Who artwork. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. <laughs> From Tell Us Publishing. No, we're here uh, to discuss another, the fanzine book, The Golden Age of the Doctor Who Underground time. Press. <laughs> Alistair, where did the idea for this one come about? Um, well, actually, the, the idea for the book wasn't mine at all. I mean, the idea for me, the, the drive to want to do it was back years and years. We're pointing back about maybe 10 years or something like that, where I sort of started to get interested back in the fanzines that I grew up with and some of the ones that I missed out on. And so really kind of started a proper collection. I mean, obviously I had stuff that I kept from the time, but it sort of started a proper collection maybe about 10 years ago and sort of built it up and built it up and built it up and then thought, oh, actually, this is now becoming a proper serious collection. I should really do something with this and try to do... I know I, I do write for Doctor Who magazine, uh, so... You, you know, you, you're bringing in elements from that here and there that you're picking up from fanzines of the time and it becomes something relevant to what you're doing in an article at a time. But I thought I really would like to do something a bit more. And it was the uh, the Chronicles bookazines, which I'd contributed to, which had been out the, the past couple of years. Was It was the 1983 edition. And so 1983, was funnily enough, was the year I discovered I found it was the year I joined Duas, so that was the year I got involved. So immediately I thought, oh, I should pitch to them and say, can you do, can we do something on fanzines published in 1983? And so, luckily, fortunately, uh, they commissioned that, and so that was the article. And then David saw that, and David contacted me and said, oh, I love that article. We should do a book on this. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe maybe we should. And that's where it came. So it wasn't my idea to do it. I didn't I didn't pitch it. We worked out what we're going to do with it, but it, it was David uh, David's idea. So David could probably explain 
if, if I've got that right, I think that's how that happened. Yeah, it's just to pretty much to some ex- to some extent that's what happened. I mean, like Alistair, I'd, I'd been collecting fanzines well since, since they were first coming out. I mean, I, I was getting them all in the seventies and you know in the eighties and stuff um, as I was doing my own fanzines. And uh, over the, through the years, when, when you start to kind of put together the, the books about the stuff that, that I've done. So, you know, obviously we did 60s, 70s, 80s, Companions, you know, the Monsters book, uh, Time Frame, um, John Pertwee book. You you start to kind of think through, well, what's left? You know, what what, what else could we do a book on? What what remains that we could do a book on? Um, and of course, as the years have rolled past, um, it's become harder and harder to find something worthwhile to do a book on that hasn't been done before. Um, there's not very much out there without going incredibly niche because the, the, the problem with Doctor Who fic- not Doctor Who non-fiction is that the broader the appeal, in my view, the kind of the better the book, the more interesting it is, um, the more you're going to sell, but the more niche you get, the less interest you're going to have and the less you're going to sell and the less it's really going to be like a viable book at the end of the day, you know. So a book about, you know, Doctor Who's companions is is great. You know, that's fantastic. If, if, you want, if you wanted to do a book about, you know, the costumes of the Jodie Whittaker era, you, you might kind of go, well, it, it's probably very interesting to a niche market, to a certain percentage of people, but you're not going to sell you know, loads and loads and loads of copies of that sort of book. So as we started to do Telos publishing and we started to actually commission books in, as well as obviously doing them ourselves, Steve and I were very much looking at, you know, what what else could be done? What what could we do a book on? How could we progress that? You know, what had we done ourselves? What is still out there that is worth doing something on? Yeah, the Target book's a great example in that it, it's kind of it's a bit niche but it's not that niche and actually it, it taps into a whole nostalgia element and a collectability element and, and plus it's really interesting i think you know finding out the background of this whole range of books and stuff so that's kind of where that one came from adventure similar so you know we've done a book on doctor exhibitions so we kind of covered off exhibitions you know we've done program guides we've done season guides for the new seasons and stuff like that and one of the things that I always thought that there was a, I'd love to see done, particularly or in part because I had a big collection of fanzines myself, was a book looking at the history of fanzines. And I always thought that that's really interesting. There's a lot of material there. It's probably a very interesting story because obviously until you research it and write it, you don't really know if it's interesting. It could be dead boring, but you don't really know if it's going to be that interesting or not. Um, but I had this gut feel that it was going to be interesting. Um, and I'd always thought it would be nice to do something like that. Um, and as, as Alastair said, when I got that uh, Doctor Magazine um, special for 83, and I saw the piece in it all on fanzines, it kind of like started to crystallize in my mind there absolutely is something to be written about the history of fanzines. You know, it definitely can be done. At that time as well, lovely Richard Molesworth had started up the, the fanzine kind of collector's group thing on Facebook. 
And again, I was looking on there and seeing people remembering the fanzines they'd done, the old issues. Oh, do you remember this one? Do you remember that one? What was that one about? You know, uh, and then there was a gallery, I think, of, of covers and stuff they started to do. Um, obviously, a lot of this stuff I had in my collection anyway, because I'd, I'd been collecting these things um, since the beginning. So that was all really, really interesting. And this whole thing just kind of then crystallized into, yeah, it would be great to do a book on fanzines. So how are we going to do that? How do we make that happen? So I reached out to Alastair, and I think I reached out to Richard as well, didn't I, um, Alastair? And, and, we, and we started sort of knocking a few ideas back and forwards about what might this look like, what might this do? Um, I think Richard, he was really, really keen to help, but I think he kind of excused himself on, on the fact that he was way, way too busy doing the DVDs or something, wasn't it? It was, he was- I think, I think it was the, the yeah, DVDs, yeah. 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 He was very, very, very busy and committed to sort of doing, working on the DVDs and stuff like that. So he was like, well, you know, I'll help you. You know, I've got all these scenes myself, blah, blah, blah. You know, but I haven't got time to write this thing. Um, so I was talking to Alistair as well, because obviously, Alistair, you'd written the piece for the magazine. Um, and I think I must have sparked something in your brain. <laughs> because you thought, actually, yeah, that, that, sounds, that yeah. sounds like quite a good idea. <laughs> so... Yeah. And, and so we talked a bit further, we kind of knocked a few more ideas back and forth, and then, then we commissioned you, didn't we? <laughs> Pretty much that, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I say, I had, I think with what was happening was it was kind of, it was kind of crystallising in my mind as well, and like David's was, and, and doing that article, and, you know, the article was based on 1983. So it was kind of, you know, not, you know, there was obviously nods to things that had come before, wasn't really nods to stuff that came after. It was just based on one year, and I think that made me think: well, you could do it year by year. Mm. And then the focus of it for me, the thing that really interested me was the nostalgia of the fanzines I grew up with, also the fanzines that I'd picked up since they were before my time in the in the seventies and the earliest part of the eighties. But I thought, yeah, let's do it year by year. But let's do it in. For me, I just say, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a conceit or whatever. You you know, you've got to wield that Occam's razor or whatever it is that you've got to decide where you're going to start and finish. And I thought, well, let's keep it to when the, the original show was on the air, because I think that's when you know fandom is reacting to a show that was on every year, that was on twenty six weeks a year or whatever. You know, for the seventies and eighties, pretty much was twenty six weeks a year that was on every year that was live that had triumphs, some trials, trial of the time mode. Uh, you know, it had those trials and tribulations going along and how, how fans reacted to that, how, you know, the newsletters reacted to that, like Sotorium, like DWB, which came in obviously in the, uh, from 1983 onwards. So you had people reacting to a show that was happening. And also another thing that was key was another, we were saying with Richard Molesworth there, who was a, a terrific support, particularly in get, kind of getting it off the ground. Another key person to, to sort of thanking this is Richard Bignall, who obviously does all the um, archive uh, paperwork stuff for the Blu-ray. And he let me have a batch of, of scans of a couple of files that related to, to fanzines, to fan correspondence with... Like fan interaction. With fan the interaction. So, so the, you know, the fans were actually... Inter I still can't quite believe that the fans were interacting with the production office, with... Graham Williams with JNT, which I'm just like staggered. It's like, how do these people make a program? 
Some might just say, well, maybe to pay more attention to make the programme. Might have been a bit better. But anyway, let's not, it's that controversy. But you just sort of think, how's the guy running Doctor Who from the top got time to interact with, with all these fanzine editors on like fanzines that still had a print run of 50? I don't know. It's a strange use of time. I think probably JNT got a bit, particularly got a bit absorbed into it. But I think there's an interesting, because of the stuff that, that Richard let us see, which I don't think has ever been seen anywhere before, there's some good stories in there about sort of persistent fans going, ah, can you can you send me a long, longer responses, Graham, to this? What is the key to time about? Can you send me a longer response? It's like the guy's got, you know, shadow to get out the door. Um, not the fans in <laughs> the TV story that was on broadcast. Um, so, yeah, th- th- that was another thing in it that uh, we we got that that paperwork, mm. and so that sort of solidified the thing that I just wanted to keep it to eighty nine because you had fans responding to a show and a show that as the eighties went on became more kind of beleaguered, and there's the responses to that and also the really quite angry responses from DWB, but not and they were alone in that. A lot of people, particularly around that cancellation and the trial time, it became pretty tough. That fanzines became it became a pretty toxic place, um, and some of that that joy and celebration maybe had been there until you know the anniversary year, even the sort of twenty first anniversary. Everything was rosy, and then it started to turn a bit. I think, but that's you know I think the year on year, hopefully. The book tells the story year on year that how fans were reacting to the programme, you know, as it was going on. And I think if you were, although we have we have a section at the end talking about the nineties as well and beyond, and fanzines that came in the slipstream of that, they were fanzines that were talking about themselves and celebrating themselves and their lives as fans and the conventions they were going to and all that kind of stuff, which is all great and all valid. But I think it's a bit harder to kind of stay focused on that because you don't have a program that you're reacting to every year that's and you know you couldn't go on set you couldn't interview the producer about the next year because there wasn't anything you know there was nothing apart from that McGann movie with nothing to do and so fans just went off I think and did their own thing and did you know fancies they wanted to do and talked about subjects they wanted to talk about with Doctor as a kind of loose sort of binding Agent, you know, something that, that kind of coalesced it all. But I think when you look at the, you look at it from, well, from the late sixties actually right up to eighty nine, it's fans responding to a show that's ongoing, and I think that's where the interest is. So you know, people are sort of going, "Oh, is there anything on the nineties?" Or it's well, there is some material at the back on the nineties, and it's quite in depth for what it is. But the focus is from that kind of coalescing of the start of fandom in the mid sixties up to eighty nine when, you know, there was just, that was it. There was no new material to talk about. And yes, lots of fanzines continued, but I think that essential binding thing to the programme and to the production office um, was obviously severed as there was no new shows. What I found um, particularly interesting uh, about um, the book and the way that Alastair approached it was, as I I kind of said before, that we, we didn't really have... We didn't know how interesting it was going to be. If this is, it sounds like a strange thing to do. We, we knew there was something to say because there's a history there of the fanzines. Alastair had kind of proved in the writing in Doctor Who magazine and the specials that you could write something interesting about the subject and that it was working. But I don't think 
Steve or I, particularly, maybe you did, Alastair, but Steve or I didn't have much of a, an idea as to how this might pan out. And what I found most fascinating is that in looking at the history of fanzines and in going through you know, the earliest examples we've got through the 70s into the 80s, in looking at that through the eye of the fanzines, you actually create a history of fandom. Mm. And I found that most interesting, that it was a very, very kind of unexpected pleasure to realise that this book, the fanzine book, isn't just a history of fanzines, it's a history of fandom itself. Mm -hmm. And the way in which the show was appreciated, the way in which that appreciation changed and developed, the way in which fans came together, split apart, <laughs> tore each other to pieces, mm -hmm. you know, made up. <laughs> over that period is it is actually a really really interesting story and i think we were all so pleased that when alistair kind of delivered the the text and in fact the text was wasn't delivered in one go it was piecemeal um so alistair was sort of working through it year by year and each year he'd send us in the text and we kind of go through it and we'd be like yeah 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 that's looking good i'll cut that bit that's not relevant no we don't need to talk about that why don't you mention that one you know <laughs> let's have a bit about this in there because mm -hmm. that's quite interesting and so we were all kind of contributing in a way into, into the, the overall text as alistair delivered it but it was really when i realized that this was turning into a history of fandom i was so excited because i thought you know that now this is a story that's worth telling you know, the, the story of the development of fanzines from, you know, mimeographed Gestetner, kind of hand-drawn, hand-printed in some cases, um, kind of pieces of paper through to sort of like fully litho, gorgeous, glossy magazines that you could sell in a shop and you would never know that they weren't official kind of thing. That's an interesting story as well. But you bring the two together and I think you've got something really special. And I, th I think I still did an amazing job of actually combining the two and creating a narrative which is just fascinating. And it's and again, it's never been done before. It's something new. It's something that hasn't been done before. Yeah. Um, and I really like that. It's good. That's something as well that it, it, it had for me, I'm like, there's an investigation here. I don't know where it's quite where it's going to go. I think there's going to be interesting things along the way, but I don't know where it's going to go because it should be uncharted territory because that's what's interesting. That's what's interesting for me. As a, as a writer or a journalist, whatever you say, that you want a story where you're like, I don't really know how it's going to end. I don't really know who the main players are. I have a vague idea. I have an idea of a roadmap where we're going to go with it. But yeah, you hope that story will, will come out of it. But to sit down and go, right, I'll just plot. If you sit, can sit and plot it all out and go, the book will cover this, 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 and these are going to be the main points and points in the narrative, do it. And you can write it in a lunchtime, then you're probably going over all ground. No, so. definitely. I mean, the thing that I mean, I find fascinating is that I know that with your own fanzine archive, Alistair, that you've been able to use that, but where, and obviously you've called on David and others, so where else have you managed to locate the zines from? And of course, you can tell us a bit about tracking down some of the editors and writers from these as well. Mm, yeah, I mean, well, the fanzines themselves, as I say, you know, some of those go back to obviously ones that I, I've been getting since 1983, going to sort of look like convention. I remember the Time Lord and the Thistle in Edinburgh in 1985 or late 84, early 85. Little events like that and that was where you saw your first sort of fanzine tables or 
other fans going, oh, do you want to buy a fanzine? Do you want to buy a fanzine? And I was like totally fascinated by these. Um, but I, yeah, I had joined Dwas in 1983, um, which is because my, my friend Ian had gone, who's a big fan like myself. Uh, he had gone to the Longleat event and he had got hold of the Dwas details because the Dwas had a table in, in the dealer's tent. Uh, so he brought back the kind of fabled address because we had no idea. We'd heard of Doctor Appreciation Society, but we had no idea how you joined it. How did you join it? Was somebody going to come up to you in the street and do you want to join Dwas? It didn't work like that. So he got the address. So we joined up. We all joined up. Um, and I sort of, that obviously, you got your Celestial Toy Room newsletter. They advertised TARDIS and you got that. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. And then you had all these adverts in, in CT for all these other fanzines and so you would do the kind of lottery of trying to pick some of these that looked good uh, that seemed interesting and, and that's how it went so i was getting fanzines from 83 so through the 80s and thankfully kept most of them although kenny you will remember that only when i went to uni at the end of the 80s i threw out my CT collection. I didn't throw it out. I bequeathed it to you. Well, I hadn't bequeathed it because I was still alive. <laughs> but I gave you, I gave you my uh, CT collection. Yep. And I don't know. I, I don't know. As I say if you still have it or if you. Well, it's. I do. St- I, know, I don't know. They were in my mum's loft um, when she moved in with. Um, wow. With, with Alistair and uh, I've I got everything back from the lo- no not you uh, with uh, my stepdad Absolutely. and I got everything back in boxes and there's everything's in the loft I've not been through it um, but I just know there's yeah. my stuff that was boxed up so I'm no. sure they'll so still I, that was there. something I had to go back and uh, get onto eBay and buy again um, but uh, yeah that that was I mean most things came from from eBay down the last decade or say it wasn't like it was and there was no way I would have done it that way I just don't work that way. You know, David says, oh, do you want to write a book on fanzines? And I go, yes, David, I'll, I'll go and get hold of some fanzines. You can't do that. You really can't do that now, that's for sure. But over a decade ago, once you sort of got the roadmap of going, oh, you want to get Shadow, you want to get Scarrow, you want to get the early days of DWB, and then you find out about things like, or you remember things like Skonos or Eye of Horus, which I used to get, so I was, like, completing the set of that. So... You kind of go, you go through and find stuff, and then you find other stuff because other stuff's advertised in that, and you find other stuff, and, you, and it sort of grows like that as a kind of natural roadmap. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the first things you you did, Alistair, and it took quite a long time to do it, was was actually to kind of to start almost at the end with the backbone listing of every mm. single fanzine. So it yeah. was like, I, I need my roadmap, and my roadmap is this listing of everything that came out in each year as documented in CT, yes. as you say, eBay, other magazines, wherever it is you can get it. And I, I, I remember that the day when you came down, obviously, to see me, um, and I think you walked into my office and your, your little eyes were kind of <laughs> bulging uh, and in, an entire Billy bookcase full of fanzines from like the 70s and 80s. Because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was the thing, because it, it, it it's all about roadmaps, really, that you, you sort of get hold of what you can. But as I say, I'd spent 10 years and had stuff back to the 80s that was mine from the 80s. But, you know, back 10 years ago, you could go onto eBay and you could buy a batch of half a dozen fanzines 
and you might be paying like 50p each <laughs> you can't do that now you can't do that now it, it's you know if you're lucky you can get something you know of a decent vintage maybe late 70s early 80s you, you might be lucky to get it for like five quid each but there's people selling stuff wanting 15 and 20 quid for one issue for things that cost you know 50p at the time so I was able to kind of build a collection when it was still viable to do that. So that was part of it, was doing it early enough, because I say it's not a case of David going, right, do I become fanzines? I went, right, I better go, go and get hold of some fanzines. I've been collecting and reading these fanzines for the best part of the decade, maybe more. But also, it, when we had lockdown, I thought, I'm going to tidy up, I'm going to really tidy up this collection. So lockdown would be, was t- so 2020, uh, just before this, sort of, maybe a year before this movie came together. Yeah, somebody, it probably, this probably came about, I think the article in the Chronicles came out in 2021, and so we started talking about it then, and then the book happened between 2022 and sort of about a year from last summer to this summer. And just getting sort of the roadmap was in COVID, when we had nothing else to do, I was like, I'm going to rationalise my fanzine collection and built a spreadsheet. We spent like two days just typing in every issue, every number, what was in it, who was the editor, and just doing all that. And there must have been about, I I, I don't know, was it 250 different issues or something at that point. And then when the book started, then Richard Molesworth came up and he graciously let me see. He had done a spreadsheet at some point and he let me see that. So I was able to then interpolate between his and mine issues that I didn't have, which he did, which we now knew existed, or when they were, or and so on and so on. And then when, obviously, when the book came together and David became part of the equation, David then largely filled in that gap of the real early zines, because David was there at the start, so David was there in sort of 76, early 77, because David's first copy of the Surbiton fanzine was done for the first convention in August 1977, the first yeah. uh, Dwarfs convention. Yeah. So David obviously had a lot of those early zines, the kind of London zines and very early Dwarfs stuff, the early TARDIS and CT. So, uh, so sort of between that, that was how it came together. And when it came to gap, little gaps, the fanzine collectors group was amazing because there was issue, people had done scans of issues. I think a, a lot of the problem with the roadmap was that a lot of stuff was taken on faith that the adverts in Celestial Toy Room were not always accurate because people hadn't done the zines yet. Generally, people would put adverts in Celestial Toy Room to get the money up front. If you were clever about it, you wouldn't print a stack of zines and then advertise it. You would advertise it at CT, get the money up front, and that would pay for the copying. So you never had to lay, put your hand in your pocket to, you know, subsidise yourself. And so I think that was... Um, useful that we actually you know we found out that plenty of fanzines didn't ever appear <laughs> that were advertised because the people doing them gave up or you know knocked two issues into one or whatever it was so because i think part of it i mean something like what david uh, had done on the target book amazing book i always had a copy on my shelf fantastic book and you know, so much work, so much research has gone into that. But I think David knew exactly who was involved, how many target books there were, 
had all the dates because David had been chronicling all that at the time in in his fanzine Oracle. So it, there was a the roadmap was totally clear. You know, everybody knew it, you knew what the books were. You knew you know you might have some work to do to find the people who were involved to find out exactly who all the cover artists are and so on. But at least you knew what the books were because they came out of one publishing house with a couple of owners down the years. Whereas fanzines were just you know totally a law unto themselves. It's worth mentioning though that all of that work that Alastair put in in compiling that list, it means that pretty much everything that's in the fanzine book is based on actual first hand seeing a copy, looking, yeah. opening it, looking at it. So where 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 we say issue X of fanzine Y came out in spring. 74 or what have you that's because we've found a copy we've looked at it and it says yeah it, you know if, if it says published 23rd of june what have you that's the date that we've put in the book you know if mm -hmm. it says you know summer edition that's what we've put in the book yeah? yeah the vast majority is based on actually seeing the copy yeah mm -hmm. Um, the other person, of course, Alastair, that we, we must mention is, is the amazing Mr. Martin Wiggins, who mm -hmm. also offered incredible amount of help. He, he, he wrote a foreword for the book because we thought you can't do a book called The Fanzine Book and not include something like Martin Wiggins because he mm -hmm. like contributed to every fanzine that was going, it seemed. Yeah, um, exactly. And of course, Martin th threw open his kind of fanzine documentation lists to us as well. It was, it was later on that we, we uh, made contact with Martin. And so everything was kind of in the stage of being written and had been extensively roadmapped and was kind of coming together to sort of the, the listing, which appears at the back of the book, was kind of 80%, 90% there. But again, we had another source. So there was my source, David's collection, David graciously did a, a spreadsheet as well of his collection, particularly the early 70s, the late 70s ones. And uh, we had Richard's spreadsheet. And then at the end, to kind of dot the I's and cross the T's, we had the, a similar a spreadsheet. I think, I think it was actually a, a Word document. But anyway, a, a very, very long, long document from Martin Wiggins. And, and obviously he's contributed to and collected Spanzine since about 76, I think. And so he really knew all this as well. So we could, again, just check a fourth set of data. So hopefully what's there is as complete as it's going to be. We were breaking new ground as well, weren't mm. we? I mean, it, yeah. it, you, you mentioned the target book there. I mean, not, not only, you're right, I mean, not only did I have a roadmap, but, you know, the books have been written about. They, it was kind of fairly extensively documented, yeah? So in a way... <sighs> It's hard to get it wrong if that makes if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the fanzine book, it's completely new territory. No one's ever attempted anything even remotely like this before. And of course, when you're breaking new ground, you know you cannot sometimes expect to kind of break your tools, as it were. So I'm, I'm hoping, you know, it's it's a good book. It's fascinating, but I'm almost half expecting some people to come up out the woodwork and say, oh, yes, but, you know, I didn't actually do that then. This was done there and, you know, uh, mm. and this happened and that happened. And No, I never produced that edition. You know, that, that never came out, that one. I'm half expecting that to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's, I not, it's not the end of the conversation. It's actually yeah, yeah. the start of the conversation about fanzines being sort of taken seriously or, or looked at seriously and, and mm. actually being 
kind of analysed and being catalogued in a way because that's I suppose what a lot of what it is is a cat. There's a narrative I would hope. There's a story there, but it is you have to have a catalogue at, at the at the base of it all to to run all the stories off to know exactly what as as far as you can what was published. But the I'm other... curious. I mean, people already a couple of people already have said yes. I gave that over to so and so on the third issue, so I didn't. And that and you go. That's why there was a different name in CT again, and but you couldn't quite prove it. But then yeah. someone comes out of the woodwork and goes, "Yes, I did the first two, but I couldn't. I couldn't be bothered doing the third one, and I passed it over to somebody else. So there was a third issue, but I didn't edit it. And it's little stories like that. Hopefully, we get loads of those in the book. But I'm sure that now it's out, people will go, "Oh well, I did." Yeah. So it will start the conversation. I'm sure. Was there anything that came up which surprised you, David? So one of the most interesting things for me was, again, when, when we were doing the research, there's actually hardly anything online about fanzines. Do you remember, Alastair, we, 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 obviously the first thing you do is you go to Google and you start trawling and you think, there's so much online about Doctor Who. You know, every single mm. aspect is documented. It's in Wikipedia, there's a wiki, wiki there's blah, 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 blah. We couldn't find anything very few people had kind of taken the time yeah. or, or the, the focus to, to do it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, there are some lists, but they're very incomplete. Very. Um, there was one big list, which I think had been done like 20 years ago. It was in a really old kind of format and it was, it was fair enough as far as it went, but even even the sort of early spreadsheets that we had sort of blew that out of the water. You know, there was so much more detail than those those could be at the time, but then you know we we are sort of doing it with. Again, it's come. It comes back to having as many of the issues as possible. If you try and write it, imagining what they were, it's like nope. You need to have the issues, and that was part of, hopefully, why I was able to do it, and I was able to do it as well because I could rely on on David's you know very sort of early days collection as well, which is. You know, extremely rare. God, I mean, it's a, it's a copy of, I think it was the first CT sold a couple of years ago for something like 350 quid. You know, and TARDIS wow. as well is like, hundred, is like hundreds of pounds for the first um, 1975 TARDIS as well. So the, the prices are going up and, and, you know, as people, I guess, maybe start to appreciate the rarity of some of these things because yeah. they were quite ephemeral and, you know, people did sometimes throw them out or they just went the way of all flesh because, you know, they were sort of cheaply printed stuff. So, you know, they, they're, they, as I said, they're getting rarer and they're getting more expensive. So good luck if you'd sort of get inspired by the book to start a collection because it's going to cost you a fortune. <laughs> and again, just, buy book, just buy the book and it's all there for you, yeah. Again, in, in, in the research side of it, um, I mean, I, I love research and I, I know you do as well, Alastair. And I, th I think Alistair and I are very much kindred spirits in our in our love of nonfiction writing and sort of digging into the details and sort of you know getting stuff together and trying to get it right, trying to get it correct. So it's like you know if we look look back to the very early years, um, there really aren't that many examples of fanzines that are known to exist from that period. And by the early years, I mean you know the William Hartnell Doctor Who fan club of like sixty five, sixty six. 67 kind of period um, before it was handed over to Graham Tattershall to sort of carry it through into the into the early 70s kind of thing. So it's like trying to sort of find sort of out that information 
was interesting. We we knew a bit of it. I'm not. I don't want to go into it too much because I mean it's all in the book. <laughs> Plug the book. Uh-huh. It's all in the book. So please look at the book. But I mean, there was there was one thing that you, you we ran up against. Do you remember, Alistair, that the sort of the the Doctor Who fan club was advertised in Jackie. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And that was all. That was that was all we knew. That was all we knew. Uh, and that wasn't. And that wasn't definite. It was no. the, a teen magazine which was thought to be Jackie. Thought to be we Jackie. We weren't even certain it was Jackie. Yeah. Yeah. So we we were kind of how did you, so I was looking for archives of Jackie magazine online and there aren't any, and I was looking for collections of it and I couldn't find any. I found someone that was selling copies and I emailed them and I said. You wouldn't happen to be able to have a quick look through and see if there's an advert. And the guy came back with a very kind of curt response, saying, "Time is money, Buster." <laughs> kind of so uh, that that didn't work. And so we were kind of like, "Oh my goodness me, this is getting crazy." But then uh, a very good friend, uh, Jeremy Williams. Hi, Jeremy. You're probably listening. Jeremy Williams, who's got access to the British Library. Um, I happened to be chatting to him one day, and I said, "You know." I've been trying to find these Jackie magazines. And he said, you know, I'm pretty sure the British Library's got a collection of them. He said, would you like me to go and have a look? And I said, oh, you can't do that. I just, I, would you? <laughs> you know? uh, and, and he said, well, I've got the day off tomorrow. Hang on. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll pop down. So on the Saturday, whichever day it was, I can't remember which day it was, Alastair, but I was emailing you, wasn't I? I was PMing you throughout the day. And he, he went into the British Library and he went through every Jackie magazine from kind of like 1965 to 1969, trying to find a mention or some sort of the top to whom yeah. fan club uh, and do you know he found it and it was extraordinary and we've got and now that information is confirmed and it's in the book and it's absolutely amazing but then jeremy being the inquisitive soul that he is because i was pming him i i, I was sort of talking about those early days um and the, the guy that was running the club there was a guy called larry leak is that right mm-hmm. Larry yeah. Leak and philip john oliver yeah, Larry, Larry Leak, yeah, John Oliver helped him out. Yeah. We, we now had the address. Well, I think we had it anyway because we had got in a letter somewhere, but, but Jeremy had the address. So he went to the local papers of the area that they lived and only managed to find a photo of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so thank you, Jeremy, very much for so we've got that in the around. book as well. So, you know, from this complete unknown... We, we, we now know more about them. We've got a picture of them. We, we know what they did. We know which school they went to. We, you know, kind of thing. It was just, you know, and I love that kind of research when suddenly you go off in tangents and you find this really interesting information about what, what was going on then. Um, but we didn't really manage to find any examples, did we, of, of any of... No, I mean it, it's it's Stuff. a good question whether whether any exists now. The Chris Hill is probably Chris Hill at the Space Museum website. Um, pro- he's probably the sort of foremost collector of really obscure stuff. You know, really sort of. He's not. He doesn't. I don't really think he sort of collects props and things like that. But he collects real ephemera and stuff. And he had some wonderful correspondence letters from to and from the fan club. That was about as far as we, we managed to get. I suspect there are no new. I think the newsletters then, as far as we know, were one sheet 
of paper with like, like a letter here's some news yeah. and that was it so people yeah. would probably throw throw them away luckily um david and uh steve james walker as well obviously uh, uh, tales publishing have i i mean i as i say I, I couldn't quite say exactly how rare they are they could be unique and that they have a couple of the earliest newsletters from the kind of graham tattersall era and you'll see those in the book and they're very basic and they're very you know just kind of basic stuff basic printing technology but they are the the first it real examples of of serious fanzinery mm-hmm. uh newsletter come fanzines i mean there's you'll see one in the book which is from 1971 which is a proper sort of it's about a dozen pages of a fanzine which david owns i don't know if we'll ever see one again uh, we we know there's a, probably about three issues of it we have that one you'll see the cover in the book it could be unique it could be unique you know and if people are going to pay 350 pounds for the first ct from 1976 god knows what they'll pay for um <laughs> for an issue of doctor who as it was but, imagined but you see you see what we mean kenny about suddenly it's the history of fandom absolutely that, that starts to come through here and starts to come out here not just the publications but you know the actual who was doing it why they were doing it how and why they handed over what their interactions with the production office were what the production office thought of what they were doing you know how the fans interacted it's absolutely fascinating mm. it's a really really yeah. interesting story some of the people we talked to i mean david was was instrumental in getting hold of some of the early doas people so jeremy bentham uh jan vincent rodsky and gordon blows who were really the kind of foremost certainly on the publishing side of the appreciation society he managed to get me in touch with them so we spoke to them and they've given us some some brilliant sort of quite honest actually quite sort of frank at times about some of the difficulties they had making all this work when there was no there's no real roadmap for what they were doing you know they had to kind of make it up as they went along uh so they've given us a lot of stories but also i was able to find keith miller who's great who's done a who'd done two two volumes of, of memoir on his, his stuff, which are, which are terrific, and I'd read and reread, which is just a fascinating look at being a Doctor Who fan in the early, you know, it's the early 70s, Perry era, largely. And we speak to him in the book as well. And, you know, he the real kind of trailblazer, sort of saying this is what a Doctor Who fanzine should be, and this is what's in a Doctor Who fanzine. But it's really amazing to think that himself and Graham Tattersall, who came before, and Larry Leake, who came before that, they were running the official, you know, as in fan clubs, recognised by the BBC, recognised by the production office. And these guys were like 14. I mean, Keith Miller like, <laughs> was 13 and he was running the official fan club. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and you get the newsletters printed, you know, doing the newsletter, sending the, the, sc- the skins, which were like the typewriter carbon paper, sending that to the BBC, who would then run off on the machine that ran off the scripts for Doctor Who. They would use that machine to run off the copies of, of his fanzines and newsletters, they would come back in the BBC internal mail. He would go and pick them up in the Edinburgh studios of the BBC, pick them up there. Then he would take them home and have to do the whole mail out himself, mailing them all by hand. You know, a 13 year old kid running the, the fan club, it's, it's insane when you think about now the sort of layers of brand management stuff you would have. 13 and 14 year old kids were basically working unpaid for the BBC running the fan club. But it was a lovely story. It's nice to see the, the social history of that. 
and, and actually you'll see it as it goes on through the book a lot of the it was quite surprising to me because when I sort of first got involved with Doctor Who fanzines, and you're talking early '85, I mean, I was doing artwork stuff, and I was 13 and a half, so I wasn't even 14, and I was getting involved in, in doing fanzine stuff. But most of the people who were doing that then were students, so in my head, it was always like it was like students generally, and early Dwas was was set up at the university as well, so it was university students, college students. But actually, when you go through the history of it, some of the, it was kids, it was school kids that were doing it, were 13 and 14 year olds. And it was, it was quite amazing. And also, a lot of them have gone to do great things. Some maybe haven't, but it's amazing what they produced yeah. as 13 year olds. To actually sit down and produce a fanzine, particularly back in the early days when it was such a struggle to get the technology to do that, even before sort of affordable photocopying. How they did it, it's just the, the concentration to start and finish and get a thing out and sell it, it is amazing. And I, hopefully we sort of paid tribute to that effort that, you know, to sort of borrow a phrase from Lou Grade talking about his show, his TV shows, he, he used to say, some of them are bad and some of them are good, but all of them are great. And I think what I take from that is that some fanzines were better than others. But they were all great just for existing. That they actually got made and got out there was was a great thing, and that's hopefully what the book celebrates, you know. Yeah. Of course, what one of the people doing the fanzines and involved in the kind of the eighties was a certain Chris Chibnall, who was um, you know editing, writing stuff for the Merseyside. Was it? I understand it was the MLG thing. Yeah, he, he was Merseyside. Um, yeah, you know, that's right. Bulletin. They 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 had two magazines. So they had a they had a kind of fanzine that was nationally sold, which was the it changed names at various points. It was MLG Newszine at various points, but the, the bulletin was the sort of local consumption version. So when people went to the meetings, there'd be like a six-page newsletter or whatever that told you about that day's meeting or you know upcoming events and whatever. And Chris Chibnall contributed to both, but he actually edited a couple of issues of the bulletin. So that was the local version. When I was at the uh, the Gallifrey convention in LA um, earlier this year, um, Chris was also invited along, um, which I thought was was great. And in fact, I was with Fraser Fraser Hines and um, my wife Sam and I were there at the airport, and we we saw Chris at the airport, and so we kind of shook hands, and he was like, "Oh my God, you're David Howe!" <laughs> oh my God, Fraser Hines! You know, obviously he knew who we were, which was lovely. And then we had a lovely time at the convention, and I think he thoroughly enjoyed himself and a really, really good time. And then we bumped into each other um, in the green room a couple of times, um, and I, I kind of thought to myself, "Then, do you know, it'd be it'd be so cool if we could get Chris to write something for the book, you know, like that the fanzine guy that became showrunner." You know, yep. that's yep. almost the ultimate, isn't it? It's it's kind of the the ultimate that you might want to do if you're running a fanzine. So I had a quick word with him, and and you know, much to my great pleasure, he pretty much agreed on the spot. He was like, "Oh my god, yes, of course, of course, of course." So when I got back, I let you know, Alistair, and I think you were kind of peeling yourself off the ceiling a little bit <laughs> that we might get something from Chris. Yeah. Um, but then Chris was incredibly busy. So we, we sent him the text over to have a look through. He said, I'll write something, but, you know, I'd like to read it. I'd like, I want to see, you know, what am I commenting on? What what are you saying kind of thing? Um, so we sent him a copy and, and he was busy, he was busy, he was busy, blah, blah, blah. 
and, and I think literally it was it was kind of the day before you delivered it, wasn't it? That finally, I think it was, yeah, pretty much, yeah. We, yeah. we had a page with a blank page set aside, yeah. and it's we'd like, left a page it's aside. It's going to be a blank yeah. page if it doesn't come through, but hopefully it's coming through. And and I was be, saying, oh, we yeah. can always fill it with some more fanzine covers. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but then Chris came through with this piece and. It was amazing, you know, it was just full of love for the fanzines, love for the fans, you know, appreciation. It was like everything that we could possibly have hoped for, <laughs> for a piece from the, the showrunner, you know, all about the thing that the book was all about. And, you know, yeah. I think Chris was so generous with his time in doing that Absolutely. for us. Just when we were like, talking about that, I think the only other person who could sort of come close to that would be uh, Peter Capaldi. Yeah. Who did have a couple of pieces in the Doctor Who, you know, which it was the Doctor Who, was it the Doctor Who International Fan Club, which wasn't international at all, I don't think, but it was the Doctor Who International Fan Club. They had a, a couple of issues of that in 1976, and Capaldi had a couple of small features in that. He didn't, he didn't edit a fanzine, but uh, I, I, so that's the sort of highest trajectories I think that I can think of is Capaldi yeah. and Chris Chibnall. Yeah. Alistair, you've, when you've been doing this, you've found quite a few names of interest. Obviously, we know the likes of fanzine royalty like David and Gary Russell, but there's been a few other people of note who've gone on to, sort of, in, in terms of writing, have, have done, made careers in writing. And I think there was a, was a music writer that you'd spotted in one of the fanzines as well. And Oh, yeah, and yeah. That, that, was a, yeah I, that was a strange one. Yeah, I knew that there was a possible connection but I was like oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I want to go there and, oh, mm. but it was, yeah a guy called Andrew Harrison who did a who was from Merseyside and um, did a fanzine called Megalos one of two fanzines confusingly called Megalos at the same time so he did one of those out of Merseyside and I thought could that be the same Andrew Harrison that went to NME? Because I grew up reading NME in, in the in the eighties, uh, late eighties, early nineties. I thought, is that the same Andrew Harrison? And, and you sort of look up Andrew Harrison, you know, today or whatever, and you think, yeah, he is from Merseyside, so could be the same Andrew Harrison. And I remember the friend of a friend saying, oh yeah, the guy who's he's a big Doctor Who fan. And you think, oh, so and then you see. Andrew Harrison's reviews of the show when it came back in 2005, and he's writing these really effusive reviews saying how much he loves the show. You're thinking it could be the same one, so eventually it's like, he's on Twitter, I'm going to have to ask him. And I asked him, and he's like, oh my God, yes, that is me. I can't believe I'm telling you this, but yes, that was me. So, you know, he, he's, he did all right for himself, which is fantastic, as I say. If you sort of sit and if you do, you know, you even do one issue, you'll learn so much by sitting down and doing a fanzine and going from blank paper to filling it with something or get, getting other people to help you fill it with something and producing it and getting it out there and distributing it in some way, whether it's a convention dealer table or through adverts in CT or DWB or whatever it would be at the time, you would learn so much. But, you know, he did, I think, six issues of Megalos. So you think how much he learned and actually, Megalos by the end of it was pretty slick. So he'd learned a lot in, in that time doing those six issues. But then to go on to write for enemy, to go on to edit Q magazine, which was the biggest music magazine in the nineties, it is is terrific. And it's great to see there's people doing that. But there's also a BBC newsreader in there. So if you dig carefully enough, there's a BBC newsreader who did his own fanzine. I think in, I know which one it might be. You need to buy the book. You need to buy a book. Oh. But yes, there is a BBC Newsreader in there. It's not Fiona Bruce. I'll give you a clue. It's not Fiona it's Bruce. 
so the, the other thing we need to we need to talk about is uh, say so not only Alistair did you write the book but you also designed and laid the whole thing out as well I did so in true fanzine fashion we equipped you with um, sheets of letter set <laughs> burnishing pens Picks. <laughs> um, rub down lettering some scans of some old photos and, and so, so set you on your way how did you approach the, the look of the thing yeah, I, I'm just thinking. Imagine if I had had to do it with with Letraset with the headers. <laughs> I'd probably still, I'd still be there. I'd still be there for the next ten years doing it. Gosh, I I remember the days of Letraset. I mean, when I did a lot of fanzines, it was the early days of, of desktop publishing. But I do remember doing stuff. And you used to draw a pencil line, faint pencil line, so you had a baseline, and then you would have to put the letters on one by one onto that baseline as accurate as you could rub them down and then if they cracked you had to kind of go back and try and match it up to the bit that's cracked and oh falling but on this yeah i mean thankfully we were not doing let's say but no just it was just a case of we had with all the I, I knew what the kind of layout i wanted was i knew there was going to have to be a lot of space for captions to explain what everything was which is kind of rod for the own back because then we sort of had to put in the editor of everything and then the cover artists, which you, you helped me to track down a lot of people just to confirm, did you draw this 40 years ago? Um, <laughs> it genuinely had to happen. But yeah, I, I knew what the layout I wanted was, but what we did was I would do sort of scanning runs here. So I would just, if I had a day spare, I would just sit and go through and just scan and scan and scan and scan and just do that for a whole day. And you might have, I don't know, 100 or something, 150. Do another day, you get another 150. And then when I went down to David's, was at David's for about two days, and he had, we had worked out everything. I went through, I was like, this is what I want. Have you got it? And we went through, took out everything, did all this, David did all the scans. He was in the kitchen, his kitchen doing all the scans because the scanner sits there and we're doing all these scans going through. So when it came to design the book, thankfully I had arranged all the fanzines in folders year by year so that I could pluck those out. And, you know, you try and just get the interesting covers, the good covers, the colourful covers, and make them bigger, and then try and fit in as much as you can. I mean, we think there's about a thousand images in this, of cover images. Cover images and some bits and pieces like my old... To ask membership cards, make a cameo appearance, but uh, yeah, there's about a thousand images. We probably could have done another thousand, mm. certainly another five hundred. So the book is enormous <laughs> compared to. I hoped it might be like two hundred pages, and it ended up at what two eight eight something like that. Eight, eight, yeah. So it, graciously, David and Steve said, "Yeah, we'll let you extend it. We'll let you extend it." So hopefully, we've got room the images to breathe and you can see them at a fairly decent size and also the important examples the shadows the scarrows of this world dwb the frame oracle ct tardis they all appear you know you can see them pretty large but hopefully the smaller ones are still give you a good indication of, of what there was but as i say yeah there's a bit there's something like a thousand cover images in there part of the thing you've got to remember as well is when i when i started this i thought I wonder how big this actually is. How much is there? And it's something like 300 different titles, 300 wow. different fanzine titles in that period to 1989. Uh, and obviously, we've got, as I say, we've got a bit on the 90s and beyond as well, but 300 different titles. 
And that's just UK. That's just UK. Yeah, and it's it's just the UK because that's what I grew up with. That was the thing that fascinated me and the story of kind of British fandoms alongside that. Because I, I, it's not I didn't grow up an American fandom or Australian fandom, so I don't really know how it works. But I was, you know, I was there from 1983 and the local groups from the end of '84, so I kind of know my way around how UK fandom works and how the fanzines work. So that's that's what I focused on. I delved into my files and I, I found a pack of old letter set sheets, which <laughs> some of which were used from when I was doing all of this and, and pens and stuff like that. And again, we scanned all of those fairly early on because I, I knew we'd want to use those on the cover or somewhere, you know, as an embellishment. Um, so that yes. quite nicely as well. Something I was thinking is that the three of us have all effectively started our writing careers in fanzines. What is it about them that you think that the 21st century is actually going to miss where everybody's on Twitter or doing their videos on YouTube and things like that? So what do you think is the the key thing that the fandom now isn't getting that we did? Really, really good question, actually. I think there's a discipline. I I, I Mm. think that there there is a discipline to writing words down and making them fit the space that you've got available. When I did my fanzines, yeah, you never literally wrote it for the first time on the page that you were going to publish. You would write it out first, you'd then have a read of it, maybe with a pen or a pencil and you cross words out and you go, oh no, that would be a better word there. You know, oh, actually, I, I want to put three target covers beside that, so I've only got one column. How many words can I fit in a column? And you go to the, the last issue or what have you, and you you go down and you say, right, I've got 57 lines, and each line is on average seven words. So that's 50 times seven. I can't do that in my head. How many words it is, right? How many have I, oh, I've, I'm 20 words, two more. I've got to knock 20. So you do all of that editing. Then you would type it out, yeah? And if and if you if you were trying to write and left justify, you'd also have to work out how many words on a line and how many extra spaces you had to put in to make the end of the line line up as well as the front. And there's a discipline to editing yourself, to sort of almost not saying the first thing that comes into your mind, mm-hmm. which is what we're doing here on a podcast or speaking it. Yeah, editing yourself, thinking about what it's going to look like on the page thinking about how am I going to illustrate that. What's fascinating is the way that that discipline changes as fanzine develop. The early days is Kostetna's. Very hard to do artwork. So a lot of the early fanzines are just text. It's literally just typewriter mm. text because that's all anybody had. You didn't have anything else. As soon as you get to photocopying, you can photocopy photos from magazines, books, newspapers, whatever you can find, you know, if you've got Weetabix cards, you could cut the Daleks out and stick them in, you know, and you can make it look a bit more pretty. So the layout starts to become more important as you move into photocopying. Then you discover how to remove the lines, the layout lines from around things. Then you discover, you know, reduced photocopying so you can fit more on the page. And there's a logistic around how you do this, how you make this work, how you make this look attractive. If we fast forward to kind of today, I can write something on a web page, push a button, and it's published instantly. I don't have to edit it. I don't have to. There's no length limit. 
I can write as much or as little as I want. No one cares. You know, it's just there. That's what I, that's what I wanted to say. Blah, blah, it's there. You know, if I want to illustrate it, I type in in my Google Doctor Who picture of Arcturus without his dome on, and I'll probably find a photograph, and I can just cut and paste it in. It's it's almost too easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think if there's, if there was one word about maybe the word would be consideration. And I think it's yeah. that it is that you have to kind of sit for quite a long time from first idea of, oh, I'm going to write that, to actually getting it on the page and putting it out, that you've spent a lot of time with it and gone, it's not what I meant to say, I meant to say this. And you can rework it and you consider it. And even given, you know, the earlier sort of things that were quite primitive, so change, you know, it's not like now where you can just find and replace and change a thing and you can go in and go, type it up and that's you. And back then, Retyping something was a laborious process. You have to cut a bit out and stick it on and whatever. But yeah, I think it's that consideration that the fanzine editors then had to spend a bit of time with anything they wrote, and, and similarly, you know, contributors to the fanzines as well had to spend a bit of time with what they wrote. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff people would regret putting in, but <laughs> we have few all attest to that. But you know, by and large, you had to spend a bit of time with it, and I think now. You know, there's amazing, amazing fan stuff of all sorts, you know, artwork, podcasts, you know, video blogs and stuff like that, which are great. But I, I think everything's very much in the moment, isn't it? Everything's like, I think this, and I think that, and I, do you think this? Do you th- yes, amazing. Nobody's right, but I think it, really it, it, having it, to sit down and put a yeah. cogent kind of thing together and not really spending the time to, you know. In with that as well, you know, I have to say that not everything today is is kind of disposable if, if you look at things like you know the terry nation dalek army videos which i'm i'm sure you're both familiar with come on much so. must, they mm. are works of art you know gav ryan miller the guys that do those they are incredible and the yeah. work that's gone into them and the thought and the editing and the time you know it's almost you could say that's a proper fanzine you know, yeah. they really yeah. know what they're doing. They've learned how to do it well, and they do it extremely well. Mm. You, you then get, you know, blogs, which are just like yours, Kenny, which are just so interesting to listen to because you get good guests in and it's good questions, and, and they're fascinating and they're really interesting. But this goes all the way down to a 13-year-old kid in his room with a, with a camera saying, you know, I've just bought this, you know, this Stabio boss, and it's terrible, and I don't like the colour and this, that... That's fine, you know. I, I love the diversity of the whole thing that, that you can bring in. Yeah. And that is so reflective of fanzines. Like you said earlier, Alistair, you know, some fanzines aren't so good. Some fanzines are brilliant, but they're all great. That's <laughs> <You know? laughs> true. Yeah. The thing that I've always you know, particularly liked was the social aspect, because Alistair and I used to spend many a Friday evening uh, working in fanzines in the early mid 90s and it's just that social aspect just getting to you know spend time with friends and you know go through it yeah. and discuss yeah definitely there's a, it, it depends i'm sure there's a lot of fancies people i mean keith miller was doing was doing his stuff i think just on you know on, totally on his own he pretty much wrote you know there's some letters but he pretty much wrote everything on his own in, in his room in edinburgh whereas yeah if you were lucky i think you know we we did the Paisley Pattern fanzine in the early 90s and it was you and me and Alan Morton and we had the three editors and we'd all take a turn, one in turn, but it meant that we were all sitting quite often together in the room putting the ideas back for them, going, oh, change this, change that, and that was nice because it was a social thing, 
but you, the idea that you could have a social network over the internet, I don't, we, no, we don't even have the internet. We there was no internet what, in, in the early got, 90s this, now. This, this is what we've got here. You know, that's like Zoom. Yeah, yeah. We're all in the same room, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Virtually. So it's really interesting. I, 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 I think, I think there's a great benefit too to to being edited. I think being edited is can be a very painful experience, but it's also um, a very educational experience as to, as to what works, what doesn't, what can you say, what can't you say, you know, what's the yeah. mark, yeah. Where's my focus? What's yeah. relevant? You know, have I gone off topic too much? Um, I mean, I, I find it fascinating um, when I get to write for Doctor Who magazine and you, you sub something in and then you see it published and then you can see what Peter or Alan or whoever did the edit on it or what have you has done to it. And, and you look at it and you think, oh, why, why did they why did they change that? And you, you kind of go, okay, all right. And you try and learn from that and you, you try and do it better next time kind of thing because that's, yeah. that's, that's the point. You, um, you won't, you'll never learn to edit unless you get edited. Yeah, exactly. Thing. I, I learned from people like Paul Simpson at DWB. It was amazing. I remember one time I, I met him at a convention and we had a, an article to hand in, so I took it with me. I took it on a desk, but also took a floppy disk and a printed copy. And he sat and edited it in front of me live. And I, I remember that one session was like so vital because you actually saw, you're going, why is he cutting that out? You go, I get why he's cutting that out. It's, very, it's a total fl fluff. And it's, you don't need it. You don't need it. Paul's an exceptional editor, though. I mean, Paul, Paul's very, very good at this. You know, I, I admire him greatly. I think he's yeah. a tremendous guy. Yes. But, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. To see that process is is all part of learning to be a writer, is all mm -hmm. part of, of developing. You know, and in a way, you're kind of not surprised that so many of the people that did fanzines back in the 60s, 70s or what have you, have gone on to, you know, to work for Doctor Who magazine, to work for the show, to be writers, to be researchers, to, you know, to edit Q magazine. Yeah, it's not mm -hmm. kind of surprising because it is such a good grounding. in, in and, how and, and a lot of people were doing it so young. They yeah. were doing it when they were in the, you know, 14, 15. So they really got ahead of everybody else because they were doing it. Out of the yeah. love of it, they were doing it before anybody was doing sort of even a school magazine. They were doing the, these magazines at home, so it, yeah, it's maybe not surprising that people really have, have gone on to lots of really good things because they put in the hours. They really yeah, put in the hours. Definitely. Well, gents, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat this <laughs> evening. It's been great, Alistair. Thank, thank you. you so much for taking the time, David, as well. But uh, before we go, can we get a quick plug in for where people can buy this fantastic book, please? David, Certainly. I'll let you, yeah. Do you yeah, so the, the, the fanzine book um, by Alistair McGowan um, is available to buy from www.telos.co.uk. If you're in America, it's also going to be available from WhoNA, the retailer that's taking copies out there. So, yeah, so hopefully you can pick up a copy and, and have a good old delve back through nostalgia into the history of fandom in the UK and uh, fan themes as well. And I can definitely say, as somebody who obviously saw this for the first time on when it came through the post at the weekend, it's it's brilliant. And I'm not just saying that because a friend has <laughs> written it, but no, it's fabulous. And I'd heartily recommend that everybody gets a copy of it. So, gents, thank you so much for your time. You're thank you, Kenny. Thank you very much. And a huge thanks to Alistair and David for their time. It was a really good chat. And afterwards, we actually felt we could have gone on for about another two, if not three hours, just discussing the changing nature of fandom and how things go. And it's 
wonderful. I mean, this book is a big part of that. And say, so pop over to the Telos website and order yourself a copy. It's already gone to a second printing. Yeah, and also, obviously, um, we had Andrew Mark on recently talking about his his book, This Is A Fake, and that's also gone to second printing. So it's it's good to see that the interest is out there. Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing is that these are sort of like quite niche things for Doctor Who fans, mm. but Telos are providing them. And it's lovely to know that there's that level of dedication being put in by writers and obviously with Telos as a publisher, looking for new products and things that are a bit different because you're not really going to get a book about the growth of Doctor Who fandom in many places and how they did it. So, yeah, it's highly true. recommended. True. As you say, it's a very it's a very useful history of fandom itself, um, which I think is important. And, you know, might might encourage a few people to, to sort of have a think about things and broaden their outlook a little bit. Very much so. I mean, this book covers the period of the 70s and 80s, and Alistair just told us sort of like chronicles Doctor Who while it's on the air. And then it goes into the 90s, obviously, when the show's off the air, and there is a nice section on that. And it was lovely to see a wee mention for the magazine and the finished product in there from Alistair, and obviously Paisley Pattern features, which was great. It was lovely just to see a couple of old covers there, including the Paisley Pattern Doctor Who Annual, which was uh, a, a really good, fun idea of Alistair and Allen's, and uh, did a spoof Hartnell yeah. and cover. I remember in the 90s actually reading... I think probably must have been when I went to Monopticon or Panopticon in '97 when I was, you know, as I say, really late to it. It's a lot late to the party. I remember buying a lot of issues of Scarrow and reading a lot of the stuff in there. I mean, and a lot of people involved went on to write for DWM or write, you know, or by that point were writing some of the Doctor Who books. So it's um, it's a good and as you've sort of said, um, all the, the stuff that you learned that's helped you in your proper your proper job in your, your adult career. If you're doing it properly and if you're learning from what you're doing, you know, the, the fandom experience can, can have a lot of benefits just outside of talking about Doctor Who. It does. It definitely does. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's very interesting. Absolutely. So, yeah, definitely recommended. So, Dave, give us a quick mention for your other podcast, which I've thoroughly enjoyed recently, including featuring in an episode as well. Yes, the R2 podcast, which is chronicling the, the pre-crisis DC Comics multiverse with an emphasis on the Golden Age heroes. Lurches through 1972. Kenny appeared recently as Doctor Midnight in our coverage of the, the big 1972 Justice League Justice Society crossover. I'm occasionally contributing to another comics podcast called Stop Let's Team Up, which is hosted by the wonderful Ross Aitken. Um, if you're a comics fan at all, I mean, I'm not sure what the crossover is between Doctor Who fans and comics these days. It used to be a lot greater the other way. Um, a lot more comics fans used to like Doctor Who than vice versa. But, you know, if you don't hear enough, if you don't think you're hearing enough of me speaking in your ears via Power of Three, you can always find me on the Earth 2 podcast. Absolutely. So that's us. We're about to head off. But before we go, Dave, before we ride off into the sunset and dig out those old fandings from our cupboards, do you have a question for me? Yes, I suppose I'm contractually obliged to ask you what song you're going to play it with. And I'm thinking, because it's we've just been talking to Alistair, it's going to be, have to be something by like either Lloyd Cole or Altered Images or something, you know, <laughs> something very Dr. McGowan. But um, oh. Kenny's making a face, so it probably isn't. What are you going to play it with today, Kenny? Well, Dave, I actually spoke with Dr. McGowan about this and uh, I actually offered him a choice and he suggested a good song. He thought that right. uh, because his first work was in Highlander, he thought, a kind of magic from Queen would have been appropriate, but... <laughs> oh, all right. Interesting. I would have gone with Princes of the Universe, but there we are. Right. I've overruled I... him. I have overruled <laughs> him on this occasion. Oh, all right. it's actually something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned the name of the fanzine that Alistair and Davey did in the 90s, the right. interesting look at fandom. And what was it called, Dave? 
It was called November Spawned a Monster. And that's exactly what we're playing out with. <laughs> we're playing with November Spawned a Monster by Morrissey. Round of applause. Bye, everyone. See you soon. Cheers, everybody. We're back next week. Bye-bye. Just a chance.